0: You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2 this morning. Daniel chapter 2, let me read this passage from Revelation chapter 1 as you're doing that. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, Has someone ever given you a piece of advice based on their experience of a similar situation that you were walking through and you didn't heed the advice that they gave you? Think about it. Think about there's been a moment in your life where you were walking through something. Maybe there was a a fork in the road and you had to choose one of the paths and you went to talk to a friend, a relative, somebody in your life, a loved one. "Hey, Hey, what should I do here? And they gave you the advice and you go, yeah, that's dumb. I'm not going to do that. Although they had already gone through a similar situation, you for some reason chose not to heed their advice. Let me let you in on just a little bit of a secret. I used to be really hard headed. And by used to, I mean like about two minutes before I preached this sermon, right? Right. But in all seriousness, there was, there's been so many moments in my life where I can look back and go, yeah, this was, this was one of those times when someone gave me advice and I chose that I had a better route and ended up not being right, or this was another time. And so I, I, instead of, you know, kind of showing you one, I just decided to show you all of them from my teenage years. So most of my conversations with my dad went something like this. I'd be doing something and he'd, he'd notice that I was doing this and he would come up to me and he'd say, hey, son... FYI, if you keep doing this, most likely that's going to happen. And if you know anything about my dad, he's long-winded, so it was never as short as that right there, right? It always came with some personal homily about what happened in his life. And so if you know anything about anywhere between a 14 and 18-year-old, when that happens, all we hear is blah, 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 right? We don't hear anything because parents are dumb in our head for some reason. I don't know why that is, but we are so much smarter than you who have gone through the things in your life, right? And so my, my dad's giving me this advice and everything that goes through my mind at the time, he finally stops talking as well. Dad, that was you. That's not going to be me. You have probably said that before. And if you haven't, you're lying to yourself. You have probably taken some sort of advice from someone. You've, you've heard it and you're going, yeah, I mean, that's how you did it. That's not really going to happen to me. And lo and behold, sure enough, my dad was right most of the time. Dad, you got that on camera. You were right most of the time. But isn't it funny how we can be told the future to a degree? We can be told, hey, this is going to happen, but yet we don't take the advice. Like, we, we know how something is going to turn out, but yet, when we're hearing the advice in the moment, we go, no, 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 what if, what if something else could happen? What, what, if, what if maybe this could happen instead of that, even though the source that's telling us the thing is pretty credible? It's a, it's a pretty solid source. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning, is how to understand that we've been given the answer to the question. We've been revealed the future and it is now our responsibility to take the future that's been given to us and own it and and receive it and to take the advice given to us by our Lord. In our series, this is the seventh week of this series called Binge Reading the Bible. If you've been following along with us, what we've done is we've kind of taken the Bible, all 66 books, and we've kind of divided it up into the seven different types of literature that comprise it. And so you've got the the books of the law. These are the first five books of Scripture. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This kind of shows us the beginning of everything. And it gives us a a solid foundation to moving forward of the character of God, the character of people, and, and why the world is the way it is. And then you move from there to the history books. And this is like the Chronicles and Kings. And they kind of show the history of... Not just the people of God, but really people in general to a degree. And then you move through the wisdom literature and the prophets, and then you get to the Gospels where we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of Jesus. And last week we covered the epistles, which are letters written by apostles to the early church to say, hey, here's who Jesus is and here's the theological teachings that you need to know. But then more importantly, how do you take those theological teachings and kind of function as the people of God? And then this week we wind up in the seventh literature, the apocalyptic literature, the one that people are interested about but are also scared of at the same time. And to help us kind of illustrate these teachings throughout the last several weeks, we've been looking at popular movies. And this week, as you saw, we're looking at the movie The Sixth Sense, not the angsty one, but the scary one. And the movie opens up, if you're familiar with this movie at all, the movie begins by revealing the secret to everything in the movie. So without giving you too much of a spoiler, I guess in case you haven't seen the movie, but although this will be a terrible spoiler, the big secret is, uh, here's the deal. So Bruce Willis, the movie opens up with Bruce Willis and his wife coming home from uh, some sort of gala or something. He is a psychiatrist or a doctor who works for those who are mentally ill, He comes home and one of his patients is in his house and this patient has kind of broken into his house and is uh, kind of not looking healthy at the moment. What we see is the the patient shoots Bruce Willis and the scene cuts to the next scene where Bruce and his wife five years later are sitting at a breakfast table and they're not really talking a lot. The movie continues to progress where Bruce is still a, a doctor helping those who are mentally ill. Struggling with things, and he comes across this patient, this young child who needs some help. Who he hasn't really been told what's going on, but he knows there's some issues. And so he begins to help this young child. And as you saw from the trailer, the child tells him, "I see dead people." And so Bruce Willis is kind of walking with this child to figure out how to uh, get him healthy, to figure out if he's being abused, to figure out what's going on in this child's life. And what he comes to realize is that this child is seeing him because He, in fact, himself is dead. Because in the opening scene of the movie, Bruce Willis didn't just get shot and healed and five years later, he's sitting at the table with his wife. No, what happens is Bruce Willis was shot and killed. Hence why the young child can see him. There's your spoiler. I just ruined the entire movie for those of you who didn't watch it. It's still very good. But what's so interesting about this movie and this idea is that you can watch this movie on the edge of your seat, really having seen all of the truth that is inside the movie, and yet you can be watching it going, how does this end? And then when you get to the end, you go, wow, I've already seen this. I was told the end right at the beginning. Wouldn't it be nice if you and I had something similar? Wouldn't it be nice if you and I were told the end at the kind of beginning of our life? Wouldn't it be nice if we knew the end of things before they began? Wouldn't it give us a different perspective on how to live our lives? Wouldn't it give us hope? Well, that is what the apocalyptics look to do. God has given us the end through the knowledge of the apocalyptic writings the question is what do we do with this knowledge so we're going to dive right into Daniel chapter 2 and we're going to be looking at kind of an obscure passage uh, in one of the apocalyptics to kind of describe this opening passage that we looked at in revelation of what do we do with this extreme knowledge of God and knowing that he has given us the end kind of at the beginning, and how do we walk in that? How do we function in that? How do we follow Jesus closer and better in our lives, knowing the end in our current time? Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reads like so. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Well, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation." The king answered and said to the child, goes, no, 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 the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Let's take a pause there. So, Give you a little bit of backstory. Nebuchadnezzar is this Babylonian king who has, in fact, taken over people groups and he has slaughtered people. And so, when he threatens to tear them limb from limb and ruin their households, this is no empty promise. This is no king that they go, Yeah, he's probably not going to do that. He's a nice guy. Nebuchadnezzar's not a nice guy, he's a mean dude. He's a guy that you don't play with. Now, he calls in front of him these enchanters, these sorcerers, and these Chaldeans. What you need to know about the Chaldeans is that these are kind of wise people. These are very intellectual people. They're astronomy, astrology type people. They study the stars. And so they have a vast amount of knowledge. And so they're looking to get Nebuchadnezzar to tell tell them the dream so that they can kind of give him an interpretation. But yet, what is Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? He's trying to say, no, no, I'm not even going to tell you the dream. I need you to tell me the dream and interpret it demanding maybe so like I mean you have a dream you walk into me and say Chris if you're really spiritual you're gonna be able to tell me the dream and I'm gonna look at you and go you're really crazy right that's probably not gonna happen in our lives I- I'm probably not gonna be able to walk up to you and go you had a dream about me last night or some of you maybe I will be able to so anyway that was for my wife only I love you anyway but what we're seeing here in this first text in this first port- of part of this passage that these are high stakes Like the king has called these people in and said, hey, if you don't tell me what number I'm thinking of, essentially, you're going to die. This is the setting that we find this story in. Let's continue on. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. You're wasting time right here because you see that the word from me is firm, If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon, he declared, Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel. He fills him in on all the gaps, and then Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Wow. Wow. So here is a furious king, a king that no doubt, no one is questioning his resolve. Like, will he go through with ruining and murdering these people? And Daniel looks at this moment and says, hey, let me get a meeting with this guy. Let let me go full into whatever this king is looking for. And not that this is a leadership talk, but if it was, leadership point number one is that Daniel doesn't run from a problem. Daniel runs to the problem. And in our lives, what we need to remember is that God has called us to take problems head on. You don't just sweep them under the carpet, hoping that one day they go away. No, you address them in the here and now. And this would have taken great courage from Daniel knowing that he will most certainly die, because what is being asked of him is, as the Chaldeans said, nearly impossible. Now, what you need to know is that Daniel is one of these wise men, and we'll, we'll, we'll skip down to verse 17, you'll see why. It says, then Daniel, so he, he, he talks to this ki- the captain's king, and he, he says, hey, let me get a meeting. And then verse 17, he says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, His companions and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So, what you're seeing here is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which you might not know those three names because those are the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They will be given those Babylonian names later. But these four guys have been taken captive, as the rest of Israel at this moment, and they have been kind of put in a high esteem in the Babylonian world because they are intellectuals, because they are wise. Although they are young, they are very intelligent. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, although ruthless, is not stupid. And so when he takes over a people, he goes, huh, what, what kind of riches and fruits do you have? Oh, you have smart people? Let me take them They're going to become my Babylonian people and we're going to, you know, use their resources. We're going to take that brain that was given to them. We're going to use it. And so Daniel in this moment goes to these three buddies and he says, hey, we need to seek the Lord. Again, not like it's a leadership thing, but if it was principle number two is before you think you have it figured out, go to God. This is what Daniel lays out in front of us, that Daniel seeks his close friends Not for their opinion, not for their wisdom, but he says, hey, come with me in intercession and supplication to the Lord because we are in trouble. I need God. I don't need a humanly fix here. I don't need some plan that you and I can kind of scheme, although we are very intelligent. We need a word from the living God. And this is so like the Lord. What happens in the next verse, verse 19? Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. You and I go through problems daily, weekly, monthly, annually. And when we are approached with these issues, when these issues come to us head on, do we run from them or do we face them head on? And when we face them head on, do we try by the might and by the white knuckles of our fist Take on the issue, or do we go to God with all of the answers? Do we say, God, I do not know the answer, or maybe even I think I know the answer, but I'm submitting to your answers, because you are the epitome of wisdom. You are knowledge. You are love. You are goodness. You know the full picture, and I only have just a glimmer. And how is Daniel rewarded? With a vision. In the night. The outcome of this story isn't necessarily to be more like Daniel. No, no, no. The outcome of the story is to trust in God. See, Daniel is in the midst of a difficult moment and he could use his intelligence to try to maybe run away or to try to come up with some scheme to trick Nebuchadnezzar because he's very crafty, but yet. What does Daniel do? He gets with his three closest homies and says, let's go to God. Let's not come up with the answers on our own. Let's not try to figure this thing out. Let's not try to manipulate the situation. Let's not think about optics. Let's go to God. When you have a problem in your life, where do you turn? Do you turn to the things that you can control and your power and the giftings that God has given you? Or do you say, God, as much as I appreciate the giftings that you've given me, I know the gifting came from the giver. And I'm going to you. How do you want me to handle this situation? What are we supposed to do? Continue on. It says, Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep, And hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells within him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel takes a God-sized problem to the Lord. And the glory in this moment is that Daniel knows that when the problem is resolved, it is way above his pay grade. And so all of glory and honor goes back to Daniel. What you and I like to do is we like to, try to take on problems that we can handle so that when we resolve them, they are our victories. But what we need to know is that all victories go to God in the first place. All good things come from Him and are to Him. And Daniel in this moment goes to the Lord, receives the vision, and after receiving the vision, he doesn't try to like placate the people around him. He doesn't try to trick them. He doesn't try to say, hey, look how wise I am. No, he goes, God gave me the answer. God gave me the answer. He's confronted with a problem. He was given all the details of the problem that were known. And his first step is to seek the Lord. It doesn't say he strategized. He planned. He goes to his closest friends and says, Let's pray. When we think about worldview problems like where we came from, where are we going, what's the purpose of life, who crafted, did anybody craft all of this thing? How did we get here? You can try and manipulate the situations because of your intelligence. Or you can go to God. And maybe you're sitting there going, I don't believe in God, so how do I go to God? Well, maybe even better, you go with an open heart. You say, All right, I don't even know who you are, what who is in this moment, but reveal to me the truth. God's Word said He doesn't come back null and void. Now, the struggle might be for you is it might not be the truth you want. It might not be the truth that you were looking for in that moment. Not as if there is some, you know, varying degree of truth, but what I'm saying is there might not be the answer that you want in that moment. Here's the the glorious picture of our Lord. The problems that you're facing are small in the picture of a God who created everything. But He isn't just some like deistic, clockmaker God who sits back and just kind of wound up the world and said, hey, go. He is so grand and so glorious that He can breathe the world and the universe and all of the cosmos into existence, but yet wants to know you. He wants to know your problem. He wants to know that his son and his daughter comes to him pleading, Lord, show me. This is the glorious picture of the gospel of our God. He wants to know you. He came to know you. So what problems are you facing? Have you gone to God with them or are you resting on your own solutions to resolve them? A life of faithful following to the Lord is understanding who you are and who He is. And earlier I said the statement, uh, you might not like the truth, and, and here's, the, here's the reality. Is, as Christians, we can become extremely prideful and, and arrogant because we, we may have forgotten that all good things come from God. And, and, and some way down the line, you, we wouldn't say this out loud, but we, we have somehow formulated this idea that we are enough. That, that, that we are, are kind of the manifestation of God's goodness. And yes, He saved us and we're so thankful for His salvation, but yet somewhere we are good enough. Like He's raised us up and, and we do the good things and so we we kind of point people back to him through our goodness and there's a sliver of truth in here and here's the danger that we kind of teeter on as Christ followers and we read a story like this and we can come to the conclusion like I said earlier like that hey the 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 reality is when we read this text hey we just need to be more like Daniel and as good and as sound judgment as that might seem I think the greater narrative of Scripture, which is the reason why we're doing this study, to kind of understand how all seven literatures kind of work together, but the greater narrative would say that Daniel's still broken too. So we don't need to be like Daniel. There might be attributes of Daniel that we go, oh yeah, that's good. But we need to be like Christ. And we can't be like Christ on our own merit. Or or maybe you read this situation like, oh okay, Daniel did the right thing in the right moment because the problem was too large for Daniel. But when the problem is manageable, we don't have to go to God for a manageable issue. We only go to God for issues that are like larger than our control. Like things that we can't really grasp, like the big questions. But the day in, day out things, like... You know, should we hire this person? Should we fire that person? Should we, you know, do this? Should we do that in our job? Should we make this investment here? What about retirement? Should we take this vacation? Those things are really too small for God. And I think even still, we would be missing the picture of what God has called us to. When we read passages like pray without ceasing in First Thessalonians, we're going, ah, he didn't really mean it like that. He just said it. He didn't really mean it. It was just kind of like a make sure your heart's right like check your heart bro like that's really what it was but what if there's something larger what if there's a a bigger picture to this trusting God thing and to seeking after him and to when he gives us answers kind of functioning in the answers that he's given us Uh, a favorite pastor of mine John Piper says it like this and this is a a rather long text but I want to read this for you because he just said it better than I could he says, Suppose you were totally paralyzed and could do nothing for yourself but talk. And suppose a strong and reliable friend promised to live with you and do whatever you needed done. How could you glorify this friend if a stranger came to see you? How could you like, lift them up? How could you kind of show them glory and honor? Would you glorify their generosity and strength by trying to get out of bed and, and, and carry them? No. You would say, Friend, please. Come lift me up. And would you put a pillow behind me so I can look at my guest? And would you please put my glasses on for me? And so your visitor would learn from your request that you are helpless and that your friend is strong and kind. You glorify your friend by needing him and by asking him for help and counting on him. In John fifteen five, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we really are... Paralyzed. Without Christ, we are capable of no Christ-exalting good. As Paul says in Romans 7.18, nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. But John 15.5 also says that God does intend for us to do much Christ-exalting good, namely, to bear fruit. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is. It is that bears much fruit. So as our strong and reliable friend, I have called you friends, John 15.15 says. He promises to do it for us and through us. And what we can't do for ourselves, how then do we glorify Him? Jesus gives us the answer in John 15.7. If you abide in me and my words in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We pray, we ask God to do for us through Christ what we can't do for ourselves, that is, to bear fruit. John 15, 8 gives the result. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So how is God glorified by prayer? Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in confidence that he will provide the help that we need. See what David or Daniel, excuse me, outlines in this text inspired by God written to us is that we need to seek the Lord. And when we seek the Lord, He gives us the mysteries of this universe as we see in all 66 books, but specifically the apocalyptic literature. He gives us the end times. Then, okay, Chris, what do we do when we have this knowledge of what the end times look like? Or what the the second coming of Christ looks like? We pray! We say, God... I have no idea what seven eyes on a monster and wings and flying things remotely means for my life. What do I do with that? And God says He will give us the answer. Now, we need to know that the answer He gives us may be just enough. It may not be every single answer that you want. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. He's given us enough to know who He is. That doesn't mean He's going to give you every single answer to every single question you ever ask. Like, oh, is it free will or is it predestination? Well, that's a great question. You'll find out when you die. Right? Because the reality is there's a lot of really smart people who've been debating that for hundreds of years and they're probably somehow both right and wrong at the same time. I don't know. And people who get up there and say, oh, I do know, they're probably wrong. Because that's one of those areas with some some gray. You know what's not gray? Jesus died for you. And if you put your faith in him, you turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ, there's no gray in this. There's hope and life eternal in Jesus. And so when we struggle to know what's coming in the end, we look to Jesus. And when we struggle because we've read the apocalyptic literature and we're going, that blows my mind, I don't know what to do with that, we look to Jesus. We come around other followers of Christ, like Daniel did, and we say, hey, I need some prayer. At Passion Camp, uh, I don't know, was that a week ago, two weeks ago? I haven't slept since then, so uh, it's been crazy. It was an amazing time with these students at camp, but one of the, the messages... Uh, Pastor Louis Giglio brought was uh, one of the I Am statements in the book of John, where Jesus literally just says, I am. And it's this idea that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they have no beginning and no end. And it's this kind of mind-blowing picture when you begin to think about the word eternity. You go, that's a little freaky. Some of you might not be freaked out by eternity. It blows my mind. I sit around in a dark room by myself and I go, eternity. My heart kind of paces a little bit. And I go, man, that's, that's a big question. What, what is it? Someone wise in my life at one point, when I was pondering this idea of eternity, whether it's eternity in heaven with the Lord or in eternity in torment, it would freak me out. And this person looked at me and said, in those moments, what do you do? And truthfully, at at these times in my life, I would kind of just, like, try to ignore it. I'd get up and play a video game or watch a movie or, you know, do anything else to take my mind off of it. And this wise person, who is my wife, looked at me and said, why don't you go to God? At 2 o'clock in the morning, when you're freaking out about eternity... Why are you trying to figure it out on your own? Why don't you just go to God? And that moment radically changed my view of eternity. Because years ago, it freaked me out in a almost like panic, anxiety type way. But as I stand today, if... The freakiness of eternity comes. I go to God, and He assures me that it's going to be the greatest thing I've ever experienced with Him. And so, when we go into Scripture and we dive into these apocalyptic type texts, and we go, Man, there's so much knowledge of the end times. The the solution, the the, the Sunday school answer I'm going to give you is Jesus. When you don't know what to do, Jesus. When you struggle with doubt, Jesus. When you have a problem in your day-in, day-out life, Jesus. So this morning as we close, I, I want to challenge everyone in this room you'll just close your eyes for just a second. I know that we've all come probably from different places this week. Some of us are coming off of the vacation experience. Others of us are getting ready to go back to school and all of those things or, or whatever's going on in your job. There's just a lot of different paths that we've all taken to kind of converge on this gathering place this morning. But I'd be remiss to not give you the end path and where we should all go. Part of the journey this summer of going through the Bible has been such a joy for me to be able to see the complexity and the beauty that 66 different books, seven different types of literature, all proclaim the truth. That God created us in His image. And we fell from His image due to sin. And the story wasn't over there. The Creator said, Nope, I'm gonna give every single person a way out. I'm gonna give my son, who comes in human flesh, lives a life of perfection, becoming a spotless lamb as the Old Testaments would foretell. And then Jesus bears a cross taking the weight of the sin and the shame of all humans, of all mankind, past, present, and future. And He says, all those who come to Me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And what it means to come to Jesus is to believe and that gospel, that good news, that you were broken and dead in your sin and your trespasses, and you can do no good outside of the person and work of Christ, but yet He came to give you life and give you life to the fullest, to give you life eternal. And if you were to repent, meaning to turn from the things in your life, from the sin, from the ugliness of your soul, and to embrace the good Jesus... You will be saved. This morning, in just a minute, we play this last song. My wife and I will be down front. If you'd like somebody to pray with you about what it means to take that next step to, to follow after Jesus, I would encourage you to come and speak with one of us. To come with arms open, and maybe the statements I don't even know. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. We'd be more than willing to do that. Maybe there's something heavy on your heart and your shoulders this morning. And you're just going, Chris or Amy, I don't even know what to do. I know I need to turn to God, but maybe I don't even want to turn to God because I'm so angry, I'm so this, I'm so that. We're here to pray with you. We're here to be your friends in Christ who lift you up and point you back to the cross. And so this will be our moment. Our moment of response. Will you come and will you accept the blood of Christ on your life? Will you come and repent? Maybe you don't want to pray with someone. Maybe you just want to pray by yourself and come up here to the altar, the steps by yourself. I would encourage you to do that. Use this moment. To seek the Lord with all that you have. This is your time.